This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for a more detailed description. Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community. Generally speaking, of course. Welcome to the second episode of Generally Speaking. In this podcast series, we are examining specific types of crime through the lens of our special prosecution units. We spoke last with prosecutors from our major crimes unit, where we specifically focused on homicide cases. For this episode, we are sitting down with the team leader of our domestic violence unit. To give you a better understanding of what domestic violence-related crime looks like in Knox County at the time of this podcast, I will start with some statistical data. Over the last several years, more warrants have been taken charging domestic-related crimes than any other offense in Knox County. Our domestic violence unit routinely handles around 25% of all warrants at our Sessions Court level. In Knox County, our law enforcement partners respond to a domestic-related call every 30 minutes. This high volume of cases has required us to assign four full-time attorneys and three support staff to adequately meet the needs of the victims in these cases. With us today is Assistant District Attorney Willie Lane. General Lane joined the office in 1996. While prosecuting many different types of crimes throughout her career, her focus has always been domestic-related offenses. She frequently speaks on the topic in the community and at officer training events. She is currently the team leader of our domestic violence unit. Thank you for joining us, General Lane. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's begin our direct examination. Let's begin by talking about the types of crimes that you actually handle in the domestic violence unit. Can you talk about what types of crimes are assigned there? Absolutely. The domestic violence unit gets the crimes based on two criteria. The first one, which is unique to us, is the relationship between the defendant and the victim. Statutorily, there are definitions that tell us exactly what types of cases involve a domestic relationship. And then by definition, it also has to be a crime of violence. Routinely, we handle our most common cases are, of course, assaults, aggravated assaults, kidnappings, um, everything that you would expect to find in this particular type of area. With regard to the relationship, though, I think it's important to realize that by statute, it's not just intimate partner violence. It's not just the violence that you see between boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, and wife. Um, it actually involves any domestic relationship. If you're related by blood, if you're related by adoption, if you were married, formerly married, or anyone within that family context that were related by former marriage. If you're roommates, that means we prosecute cases where there are roommates on the college campuses. It means we prosecute cases between cousins. Um, we have non-intimate partner relationships that actually primarily involve parents and children. It's vast. It's a lot larger than you could imagine as far as the base for the 
victims in this. We've talked a lot about the different levels of courts in our system. Let's talk about domestic violence crimes in particular. Which level of our court system do you handle the most volume of domestic violence cases in? Unlike some other units, almost all of our cases are charged by warrant. Officers respond to a scene if they can determine a primary aggressor. The preferred response is shall arrest. So all of those that come in, come in through our general sessions court. The vast majority of our cases are resolved in sessions court. There's a lot of reasons for that. Unfortunately, more than half of the victims of our cases either don't appear in court or appear but don't want to participate in the prosecution. Um, That makes it very difficult to continue. We do try to resolve them as much as possible in sessions court. We also know if we have that victim, we have her or him at that moment in time in front of us, and we may not have that victim by the time it goes to trial. It's very important to try to gain a resolution if possible. Not all of them can be resolved at that level. There are a lot of consequences that go along with the domestic violence conviction. If you are convicted of a domestic violence case, you can never own a weapon again by federal law. This makes it, of course, something that a lot of people just will not plead to. There are also cases that are clearly unresolvable because of their nature and because of the heinousness of the act. Those have to go into criminal court. Um, Luckily, we have two amazing prosecutors in criminal court, Heather Good and Joe Welker, who handle them from grand jury on. But Danielle Jones and I handle them downstairs in sessions, and the bulk of them are resolved there. What are some common misconceptions about domestic violence cases in general? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is kind of what we were talking about earlier, the types of victims that we assist with. I think most people look at it as an intimate partner relationship type of crime, and and it's not by statute. We have so many parents that are coming in who have children that are drug addicted or have mental health issues. We deal with all of those. I think another uh, misconception is that the victim of a domestic violence relationship is the one pressing charges. That is absolutely 100% never the case. It's the state of Tennessee that presses the charges. The victim does not have the ability to either press the charge or drop the charge. That's completely up to the state. So many times we'll be listening to jail calls or we'll be talking to victims when they come in who say they've been pressured not to come into court or to drop the charges, and we don't do that. If we can proceed, we will proceed um, with or without the victim's participation. Because think about it, why should it be different than any other crime? That person is a subpoenaed witness, victim who has been the victim of a violent offense by definition. I think something else that, that people thought regarding domestic violence is that somehow it's just not as serious as a case that doesn't involve a domestic relationship. That somehow, for example, one of the highest Um, percentage of of cases that we prosecute is aggravated assaults by strangulation. It's a particularly violent act, which is a precursor in a lot of ways to homicides. Victim that has been strangled is, there's so many percentages, but I think 75% more likely to be the victim of an attempted homicide. Strangulation is a huge lethality factor. I think some people look at a domestic relationship and somehow think that that victim might be less traumatized, or it's not as serious as if it were a stranger on the street. Because if you think about it, someone walking up and strangling a stranger, you're horrified. With regard to a domestic violence contest, somehow it doesn't seem quite as bad, and that's just insanity. It's equally as traumatizing, sometimes more so. So I think that there's this idea that it's it's just not quite as bad 
as a stranger case. There seems to be a very large percentage of victims who don't want to proceed with these cases. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons you just mentioned is because they would often say that they have been pressured not to come to court or to pursue the prosecution. Can you talk about who it is that's placing these pressure points on these victims not to show up? First and foremost, it's the defendants themselves. Anytime someone is um, arrested for a domestic violence case, they're released on a conditional release order, which precludes that defendant from contacting the victim in any way, shape, form, fashion, third-party contact. But the number of cases that we get in that are violations of those conditional releases are amazing. And luckily, by statute, if we can prove that um, you violated that, you can be held without bond. You forfeit your right to bond if you violate that condition. And the reason our legislature decided that was because of these coercive tactics on the part of defendants. And we know this because our, the main way we know it is through jail calls. It is remarkable the number of defendants while in custody that will tell their victims, don't come to court, don't prosecute. I had a case just a couple of weeks ago where I had a young woman outside, and you could tell she was very frightened, and there were two young men that were circling her. Turns out that they were friends of the defendants. We had them immediately brought to the attention of the court officers here and you know, tried to resolve that situation. But you've got to remember, these are specifically cases where these people have had a relationship for years or whatever period of time beforehand, so there is a continuing relationship there that is unique to a stranger case. So methods of coercion like that are much more effective with a domestic violence victim than with someone that, let's say I called you and said, don't come to court, but you'd never met me before. Well, that's one thing. Let's say that you are the father of my children that has beaten me for years and you tell me not to come to court. That's an entirely different um, form of fear that they're gonna react to. So that's one of the reasons they don't come. There are a lot of these victims that are pressured not to come, not to pursue the prosecution or cooperate in the process. Mm -hmm. So are you able to prosecute cases successfully even when the victim does not want to be part of the process? We use everything we can to try to make it without that victim having to come into court if she's not able to. We don't want to, quote, re-victimize her by taking away her voice but at the same time, she's the victim of a violent crime. And it's, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's my job to prosecute violent crime. If a victim is unwilling or unable to participate, we never force that victim to come in. We never threaten or coerce that victim. If we can make it without her, we do it through our officer involvement, through 911 calls, through jail calls, witnesses that the officers have spoken to. With regard to our law enforcement, we went to them and they have responded gangbusters. We went to every training, we went to every roll call. We called upon them to be the voice of the victims and to be the first face that victim saw that she felt. And I say she, of course, males can be victims as well. 85% of true batters are male and the victims are female. So that's kind of like the language that I use, but certainly I don't mean to say that men can also be victims. So I think in the long run, if it can protect her and maybe assist him to not commit the crime anymore, that's what we're here for. I think you're touching on this, but let me ask the question. If the victim doesn't want to prosecute, what are some of the reasons that you feel you need to continue on with that prosecution, even if she doesn't want to go forward? The reasons why domestic violence victims don't want to prosecute, honestly, could be a podcast in and of itself. 
There's so many, and they're valid, and they're so true to these victims. I kind of call it the five Fs. Fear, finance, fantasy, failure, fault. With regard to the fear aspect of it, victims don't want to prosecute because it is the most dangerous time for a victim if they're trying to leave that relationship. 75% of all emergency room visits with regard to domestic violence occur when a victim is leaving or attempting to leave that home. 25% of all domestic violence-related homicides occur when a victim is either attempting to leave or has already left that home. So when someone says, why doesn't she just leave? She knows that she is in danger if she leaves. That's just a fact. Another major reason that victims don't come forward is our financial reasons. You know, I get up in the morning, I leave my house, I leave, um, get in my car, I drive to work, a work that provides me wonderful insurance and benefits, and I'm so fortunate in that. I don't rely on someone else for those things, or more importantly, my children don't rely on someone else for those things. Imagine if you come into court, you assist in the prosecution of a case, you know what's going to happen is you're going to leave your home or lose your home. Your insurance, your children's insurance comes into play. Those are huge factors. And the fact that your entire life is gonna turn upside down. Everything that you know, maybe for years, maybe for decades, is gonna be gone if you go in and tell the truth about what this person is doing to you and your children's lives are affected just the same. People don't think about the reality of that. Another reason is fantasy. And I say fantasy because kind of tying into what we talked about, that victim wants more than anything in the world to believe it's not true. It's not really the person that's hurting me. That's not who they really are. Who they really are is the person that loves me and cares for me that I see the other 50% of the time. If it's that person, if that's really who they are, then everything I know goes away. My entire life goes away. A lot of times, a true batter is very, very good at making a victim believe that she has brought this on herself. The number of times I've spoken with a victim outside the courtroom who says, well, I pushed his buttons, that's why he strangled me. Or I knew by then that he was in a bad mood, but I still you know, stayed talking to him about this because I really wanted to talk to him about the problems in our marriage. And so that's when he put his hands on me. They have gotten very used to being told it's their fault. So feeling at fault is a huge factor. And faith. There are a lot of situations where people have gotten married and they want this marriage to work and they believe marriage is truly until death do they part, the good and the bad. And this is just part of the bad they have to put up with. There's an embarrassment that goes along. You focus on the strangest things because to focus on the reality of it is just so hard you don't want to believe it's true. But going back to the feelings part of it, I think most importantly, and the most sodded thing that we hear and almost in a way that's making fun or derisive of a victim is that she loves him. She's gone back because she loves him. She loves him. Well, guess what? She loves him. This is a human being that she has had a relationship with perhaps for decades. This was someone she had a first date with. This is someone who was there at the birth of their child. This was someone that was there at the death of a parent. This is someone that is not a monster. We try to have this idea that an abuser is a monster because if they are, then it goes back to victim blaming. It should be easy to leave a monster. Who couldn't? They're not. They are human beings that have committed a horrible act. 
There are human beings that are probably the result of growing up in a violent home. They are men and women that have mental health issues at times, that have addictions at times, that are not excuses, but certainly go into why these things are happening. We are seeing a snapshot on that warrant, just one single snapshot of a human life. This victim is coming in with an entire video catalog of a life with this person, and she loves him. Love is a strong motivating factor as fear any day. So that's nothing to be made fun of. That's something to understand and put in the context of why it's difficult for her to come in and then stand up and testify against him. Imagine that. So there's so many issues that go into it, but they're all valid issues that we've got to look at and put it into what should we do with this case? Every prosecutor in your unit has one goal in mind, every single one of us. We have two human beings here, and we don't ever want to see them again. It's not a conviction rate. It's not sending somebody to the penitentiary. That's not it. That's never it in this unit. It is what brought this abuser into court and what brought this victim into court, and how can we get her the services or him the services he needs to never be that victim again? And honestly, what can we look at for this defendant to do the same thing. It doesn't help us to send somebody to jail and do nothing else. They're going to get out. If we can somehow figure out a way to make how we handle this case appropriate to who that defendant is, then that's a success. If I don't ever see them again, that is a success. And I think that's one of the things that's very frustrating for us at times is we don't see the success stories. We see the ones that repeat those crimes. We see the victims that come back again and again. But I think success is when they change and it doesn't happen again. You've just talked to us about lots of reasons why a victim wouldn't want to prosecute and very valid reasons that you've outlined. But let's talk about some of these cases where victims don't want to prosecute, but you continue to prosecute anyway. Explain what those cases are and why you make the decisions to proceed in some of these domestic violence cases where the victim does not want to participate. I'm going to answer that question in reverse order. First, why we prosecute if the victim doesn't want to prosecute, which is a question I've heard for 25 years. If she doesn't want to do anything, what's it to us? If she doesn't want to come in, then what's it the state's business? Well, it's simple. It doesn't just affect that victim. It affects so many other human beings and human lives. First of all, I think it's important to prosecute a case without victim participation because of the message that it sends to the two people that are in with us at that time. We tell that victim, we'll believe you. We don't want you to be hurt again, and we'll fight to try to help you in any way that we can, whether or not you're ready. I tell every victim that comes in and doesn't want to prosecute, if at some point in time you feel strong enough to be able to do this, I'm not going to go, oh my gosh, she came in a few months, weeks, years ago and didn't want to do anything, so I don't believe what she says. I will always believe her if there is evidence to to establish that this crime occurred. We'll never turn our back on that victim. Secondly, you're sending a strong message to that defendant. She may not be ready to, but we're certainly going to try to. Utilize this if we can't prosecute it at this time to change, to get some help, to try somehow figure out because we're always going to attempt to hold you responsible and accountable for this. I think that's important for them to walk out of there knowing. I think, though, other things that people don't look at is that victim is clearly not the only one affected. First of all, law enforcement. The most dangerous calls they go to are domestic violence calls where emotions are high. There are can often be firearms involved. Those officers are arriving at a point when things are at their 
their highest point in emotion are at their most volatile. More officer-related shootings occur at a domestic violence call than any other call. Also, with regard to law enforcement, if you do a background check with regard to officer-relating shootings where an officer has been shot or killed, if you go back into those defendants' backgrounds, so often they've got a domestic violence background and very often they've got a background in strangulation. It's very interesting when you dive back into it. These are the guys, and I say guys with regard to this because strangulation is a gendered crime and 94% of crimes committed by strangulation are male. So I'm completely comfortable saying these are the men that kill police officers in the line of duty. There's a danger and lethality with regard to those particular abusers that you have to look at and pay particular attention to and do your best to prosecute. Also, you have to look at the community. When you get domestic violence fatalities, domestic violence workplace shootings, things like that, so often 20% of victims in domestic violence homicides aren't the victim themselves. They're a coworker, they're law enforcement, they're a bystander. When these defendants go off the rails, so to speak, they're taking out other lives as well, and that's affecting the community. Mass shootings, again, if you look back at those mass shootings, you're gonna find domestic violence in backgrounds of majority of them. But I think the most important reason we prosecute without the victim wanting to is the victim's not the only one in that home more often than not. There's a little boy or a little girl somewhere in there listening to everything that's going on. And that's a little girl that's gonna be a victim and that's a little boy that's gonna be an abuser. It is almost guaranteed. I had a case last week where a seven-year-old called 911 twice. A seven-year-old called 911 because daddy was strangling mommy. That mother never came to court. That police officer who talked with that child did. We were able to revoke that defendant's bond without the participation of the victim and get those cases through the grand jury, the new cases, all because of officer participation and evidence-based prosecution. And that's the kind of abuser that with or without the victim you want to focus on and use your resources on because they're the ones doing so much damage, not just to that victim, but to the next generation. And you've done a great job of talking about how uh, domestic violence really isn't just a private crime that occurs in a home. It affects so many people in such a large circle. Uh, the entire community is affected. And our job is to protect the community. So um, domestic violence is something that is very important that we do prosecute and prosecute um, to the fullest extent. You've talked about a lot that is very heavy um, a lot that to our listeners, um, it's probably a lot of good information, but also very heavy. And so in listening to you talk, it just brings to mind a question of, as a domestic violence prosecutor, what keeps you up at night? I'll be honest. When I first started doing this 25 years ago, I found it very difficult to separate work from home. And I took a lot of the trauma home with me. At some point in time, you realize that you're not doing anybody any good if you can't separate it and compartmentalize it. Once I think that happened, it made it a lot easier for me to focus on the work at work and then just walk out. I'm also so lucky to work with the people that I work with. We share a lot of these experiences, especially our victim witness coordinators. Heather Hubry and Kelly Wilson are our victim witness coordinators in the domestic violence unit. 
And I always say and joke that, you know, the attorneys are merely the OBGYNs that walk in at the end and grab the baby and get the glory, but the victim witness coordinators are the true nurses that are there holding the hands, helping, sharing the tears. We've got victims that'll call Heather or Kelly months after their case has been resolved just because they made such an emotional connection with them. So you talk about secondary trauma, you know, those young women deal with that every day. But I think the fact that we work with with people that share it. So I think at this point, you know, the support and the ability to leave it at work doesn't keep me up. What does keep me up now are two things in particular. When we have non-intimate partner violence, the majority of those are parents and children. And I say children, we're not dealing with children, of course, we're dealing with adults, but adult children of parents. And usually those defendants, or a lot of times those defendants are either struggling with addiction or they're mentally ill. By definition, if we have them, they've done a violent crime, usually against a parent. The parents are frustrated and at their end, especially when it comes to mental health issues because they've searched and for years, probably that child's lifetime, not been able to get assistance, true assistance. That bothers me. Those cases bother me. And the other thing that bothers me, and I was speaking with them, Danielle Jones this morning about this in particular, it is terrifying when you'll get, you'll see something on the news or a friend will call and say, there's been a DV homicide. You immediately go, did I handle that? Has that been a case I've touched? Did I do the wrong thing? Did I somehow... Was I somehow not hard enough? Was did I did I let this person out? And that's part of decisions that we have to make with every case. And some of those decisions involve agreeing to probation. And you hear that call go out and you think, is this someone that I have allowed to to hurt this person again? I mean, clearly the actions are the responsibility of the actor, but did I did I drop the ball? Sure. I've been part of that process. Did, did I do the right thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that is probably something that's very heavy for all prosecutors because we all do really uh, affect people in their daily lives and make decisions um, that affect people down the road. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's always a scary place to be. Something that you talked about in your answer, you were talking about victim witness coordinators and the role that they play. Can you kind of expand upon that and tell our listeners exactly what victim witness coordinators are and what they do, especially in your unit where they are so hands-on with these victims? Oh, I could talk about these women all day long. Um, What happens is this. When the victims contact our office, they contact the victim witness coordinators. Um, the victim witness coordinators also call the victims, let them know the court date, find out if they have any questions, talk to them about the issues of bond conditions and the fact that there can be no contact. And then through the process, it's the victim witness coordinators that is the main conduit of information between victim and attorney. When they get to court, the victim witness coordinator is the one that goes downstairs, speaks with them, again, listens to why that human being has been brought into that courtroom and very rarely is it not extremely traumatic. I think especially something that is so difficult that the victim witness coordinators have to deal with every single day, all day long, sometimes all night long. I know that um, Heather got a call last night at 11 o'clock from a victim's mother who had a, you know, was very traumatized about something that the, the defendant had done, is during COVID, a lot of these cases by necessity, have been set out for months. You could talk six, seven months from the time of offense to the time it gets into court the first time. 
Those conditional releases are still in effect. That means the defendant is kept away from the victim and the family. Well, for a lot of these cases, that isn't necessarily what would have happened once we've gone to court. The majority of them would probably have been resolved in a way where there could have been communication again, but through with counseling, with probation. So we've got victims that are calling our victim witness coordinators daily saying, I can't pay my bills. My children want to see their father. And they're taking on this role themselves to calm these people down, to try to explain the process to them. That's extremely hard. As the attorneys and the victim witness coordinators walk through the system with these victims, ultimately we end up with a case in court and we end up with some type of finality to this case. Uh, And not all of these cases end in conviction. Um, Sometimes when they end in conviction, there's jail time. Sometimes there's not. Um, In domestic violence cases, do defendants most often end up in jail or do they most often end up being provided some type of service? They most often end up receiving some type of service. Now, kind of like back to that, what keeps you up at night? I know, we all know, simply putting somebody in jail isn't going to change a behavior. Now, there are some, that's where I start. I will start when I look at a defendant that's got a long history of having this shot before, has a long history of probation, or has a history of not doing what they were supposed to do and reassaulting the victim. If you've got somebody that has had that opportunity before, then that ship has sailed. I'm looking at at jail time for that person. We've given them that ability to get counseling and they've not taken it and they've committed another violent act. Again, it's all shades of gray. You've got people that are in their 50s that had a very first charge ever. It's a situational issue where factors came into play that caused that person to do this act. They have to be held accountable for it, but that's not the same as the person that's been battering this victim for years. That's somebody that you look at what brought them there that day and we try to determine what they need. And that's when we look at mental health counseling. That's when we look at drug and alcohol counseling. That's when we look at batter's intervention or anger management, which are two very different things. I think people have this concept that anger management is the same thing as batter's intervention. It's not. If I am a defendant and my anger comes out in sort of a shotgun approach, I will be just as mean to the guy at the service station as I am to my wife. That's an anger management issue. That's not a true batterer. If I'm at work all day and I'm just the nicest fella you've ever met and I come home and the power and control and the violence comes out towards my significant other, my intimate partner, that's a batterer. They need a very different type of counseling and they're certified batterers intervention programs that we send them to. So even within the context of the defendant themselves, there are different types of counseling that we send them to. They're all very different. None of them. I have prosecuted so few defendants that you can look at and say, oh, they're just altogether bad. They're just this horrible human. They just, there's nothing that can be done here. That extreme. And then the other extreme is, you know, of course, this is someone that's been unjustly accused. Most all the rest are right in the middle, and each one of them need very particular consideration to figure out the best thing to do because just sending them to jail just puts them out again. That's not going to change a thing. I have heard you in the past often talk about domestic violence and say that to you, it's really not a woman's issue. It's really more of a man's issue. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that and what that means to you? I think that 
it's such a societal term. It's such a, it's, it's so ingrained in us as a society that you don't even think about it anymore. But when you think about domestic violence, and in some ways, sexual assault is kind of, or it's definitely viewed at as a woman's issue. And once you designate it as a woman's issue, then that kind of gives the men in society the ability to not participate in the dialogue to end it or to take it more seriously. What happens then is they're not at the table to assist in this cultural shift that has to be done before there's ever a true change in domestic violence. And it's a man's issue. When 85% of batterers are men, that's a man's issue. There is a absolutely fabulous TED Talk. His name is Jackson Katz. When I watched it the first time, I'm like, yes, 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 that's exactly right. He is completely on point in a million different ways about silence from men in the community, completely removes them from any sort of responsibility, and then it just turns into, I hate to say it, just a woman's issue. So I think when we tackle that, when we open that dialogue, when we start talking about it in more of a sense of a human issue, then that that can change everything, but we don't do it. We've got to start focusing on the abuser and not the victim. If I'm walking down the street and I'm abducted and I'm hurt, no one shifts the blame to me. It should be the exact same in a domestic relationship. The more we can talk about it, the more we can shift that focus. I think the more we can actually come across some great change. It's got to be a cultural change. And speaking about changes on uh, changes to domestic violence laws, that's something else that you've been passionate about. You have uh, been someone who's been very active and supportive in legislative reform as it relates to domestic violence. Can you talk about some of the recent changes in the law that have been helpful to you and your ability to prosecute these domestic violence cases? A couple of really great changes that have happened is one um, change is with regard to a conditional release violation. Now it's not just a violation that you can be taken into custody on. It's actually a, a misdemeanor where they can be charged with the crime. Explain what a conditional release violation is. Some of our listeners may not know what that is. If you're arrested for a domestic violence charge, then the magistrate fills out a conditional release form. It basically is conditions that when you're released, you have to comply with. In every domestic violence case, the minimum of those conditions should be no contact with the victim, no assaultive behavior against the victim, sometimes no going around the home of the victim. Even if that's the defendant's home, he or she has to stay away during the pendency of the case. There can be other conditions added. In stalking charges especially, we oftentimes request a GPS I personally think stalking, although a misdemeanor, it can be aggravated, can rise to the felony level, but most stalking cases are are misdemeanors. But to me, they're some of the most dangerous cases that we see because we're talking about someone that there's an obsession a lot of times. So we will ask for a GPS to be part of that condition. He can't be released until he gets a, or he or she gets a GPS attached. Firearms, not being around firearms is another condition that can be attached. So let's say you've been released, you've signed this form, I'm not going to do any of these things, and then you do them. We find you at a traffic stop with that victim. The victim's not being assaulted, but the victim is with the defendant who has been ordered to stay away from her. Now that's a whole new charge. 
before it was a violation of that release and you could take them into custody and hold them with that bond. But now you can actually charge them for violating that because they violated an order from the court. Whether or not that victim is in there voluntarily makes no difference. We lose a lot of cases because these defendants are reaching out and trying to be loving and affectionate towards that victim. I'll never do it again. And when that happens and there's contact, that contact's a violation, period. Another recent addition to the legislation that has been extremely helpful to us is prior to last year, I'm listening to a jail call, and oh my gosh, I listen to them all the time. And what I hear is, don't come to court. Whatever you do, don't come to court. Call her and tell her not to come to court. Tell her she knows what to do. She can't come in here. If she doesn't come two times, then I get out. As frustrating as it would be to listen to that, there'd be absolutely nothing that could be done about it because there was no threat of force being given. He wasn't saying, if you come to court, I'll kill you. But we've talked a little bit today about how a domestic violence relationship is very different, especially an intimate partner relationship. You're talking about someone that controls so much of that victim's life or has been someone that's been abusive to the victim for years. So again, it's very different for me to call you a stranger and say, don't come to court when someone stole your car. You're going to be like, that guy's crazy. Of course I'm going to court. But for me to call you after I've been abusing you for years and say, don't come to court, that's a threat in and of itself. So we were able to change the law from just coercion to coercion or persuasion of a witness. So when we get those jail calls now, let's say that victim listens to him and doesn't come to court. Now we have a completely standalone offense that we can prosecute. And is the goal at that point to keep him in jail? We can use that to have a no further trouble, to have a batter's intervention requirement. We can use that standalone charge without the victim to try to, again, figure out a way to get that defendant what, get what he or she needs to not do it again, whether a victim ever crossed the threshold of this building. So that has been wonderful. So we've talked about some of the services available for defendants in lieu of jail, but what services are there for victims of domestic violence? We are so fortunate in Knox County to have the Randall E. Nichols Family Justice Center. Actually, it's one of the first family justice centers in the country. It's been there for oh, 11 years now, I think, and I still think it's one of the best-kept secrets in Knox County. It is a huge resource for victims, and our victim witness coordinators um, here in our office always will direct victims, and I always have will ask them if they've had contact over there because once they go to the Family Justice Center, under one roof, they have the ability to have contact and services through Knoxville Police Department, the Knoxville Sheriff's Department, Legal Aid of East Tennessee, the YWCA, which is, a, of course, just an amazing group of advocates and support for domestic violence victims, and the Sexual Assault Crisis Center, Adult Protective Services, Child Help, Goodwill, other agencies that that victim walks in. She fills out a questionnaire. She goes through a process where she tells exactly what she or he are looking for or need, housing, shelter, Childcare, counseling with regard to children, which is huge. That's another aspect that I try to talk with every victim about if they have children, how important it is that that little boy or little girl go into some sort of counseling because 
They've seen things and have images in their mind that they're not going to remove just by a parent's love. They need to talk to a professional. They can get that information from the Family Justice Center. If they want to proceed with a warrant, they can talk to, again, KPD or the Sheriff's Department. If they want an order of protection, they can get it all done there. They don't have to go back and forth to this building. Um, They actually will fill it out for them then and file it for them. They can take their children. There's a place for the children to be while they're being interviewed. It truly is an amazing resource for this area, and I wish I wish more people knew about it. I will talk about the advantages of that building all day long. Well, we have certainly covered a lot of ground related to domestic violence today. Having said that, is there anything else that uh, you feel our listeners would need to know or anything else we didn't cover or that you'd like to add? We talked about legislation that we've done. There's still, there's some legislation I'd love to see. I think that I talked a little bit earlier about, and again, this could I could go on for days and days about the next topic, so please get the hook out and drag me out if you need to. But the vast majority of cases that we prosecute in felony court, and I mean the vast majority, are cases where a defendant has strangled a victim. It is so common in domestic violence relationships. There's a lot of reasons why you see them come up in domestic relationships. It's a very up-close and personal crime. It's also the ultimate form of control you're basically controlling that victim's next breath. And again, it's it's a gendered crime. 94% of defendants that strangle are, are men. It's extremely effective. We've all been in a situation where we've been out somewhere and we've, we've been at dinner and, and we for just that second, we, we get choked. All of us have been there for just a very few seconds. There's nothing better you can just drive it as terror. You're terrified when you can't take that next breath. So what you have to do is imagine your intimate partner a few inches away from your face, basically looking you in the eye and controlling your next breath. They're not doing that most of the time to take that victim's life. They're doing that to show that victim that at any time they can take that victim's life. It is extremely effective. It is so difficult to prosecute. The legislature just a few years ago made strangulation a felony. And I'll tell you something, when Tennessee... The legislature gets it right, they got it right. We now have the toughest law on the books in the country with regard to strangulation. Not only is strangulation a Class C felony, just attempting to strangle someone, it's a Class C. It is not only attempting to block the breath of the victim, it's also the circulation of the victim, which is so easy to do. Four to five seconds of applying pressure to a victim's neck will render them can render them unconscious. 10 seconds or more, they're just out. Death within a few minutes, and it's so easy. Basically, the amount of pressure that it takes to open a can of soda is the amount of pressure it needs to occlude blood flow. That is remarkable, which means most of the time, it leaves no marks. Our legislature even wrote into the statute whether or not there are any signs of injury or whether or not there is any attempt to or any intention to cause serious bodily injury, that's a strangulation. We we really met that challenge strongly. So one of the um, times that you'll see strangulation events occur, become more frequent, believe it or not, is when a victim is pregnant. There's a lot of reasons I won't go into because again, could talk about it all day. Anytime a victim is strangled during a pregnancy, there are physical consequences that could occur to that unborn child. Miscarriage is not uncommon after a strangulation event. I personally think that 
there should be legislation passed where if a victim is pregnant at the time she's strangled, that it should be a higher classification of felony. I think it should be a class B felony. You're not dealing with one victim at that time. You're dealing with two. And another area that I would love to see the legislation um, take a good look at is anytime there's a domestic violence event that occurs within the presence or earshot of a child, the damage that is inflicted then is, again, the ripple effect is huge. I don't mean that it should be a separate offense, but as you know, there are enhancement mitigating factors. If you have a defendant that has been convicted of a crime, you go to a sentencing hearing and the judge can look at enhancement factors and say, you know, this this happened at this time and I think he should maybe get a little bit more time because of it. I think he should be higher in the range. I think any time a child is within presence or earshot of a domestic violence act, it should be an enhancement factor. And I think the judge should be able to look at that and go, there was a child in the room when you did this. You know, we've we've done a lot of great things. There's been a lot of really wonderful laws that have been passed that have strengthened our ability to fight domestic violence. But those are a couple of my goals. Thank you so much, General Lane, for sitting down with us today. Um, I know that the information that you have given has been invaluable to our listeners. So thank you so much for being with us today. You are so welcome anytime. In closing, we want to encourage the community to help prevent crime and promote public safety. Domestic violence can affect anyone. If you suspect that a friend or colleague is experiencing domestic violence, speak up. Have a conversation with that person. Encourage them to seek help. However, be willing to remain a friend even if that person chooses not to leave the abuser. Remember, isolation from friends is often exactly what abusers try to achieve with their victims. If you or someone you know is experiencing abuse, please reach out to a Family Justice Center in your area. Information on the Family Justice Center here in Knox County can be found at fjcknoxville.org. If you want to learn more, we've included links to sidebar conversations in the show notes. Don't miss out on more behind-the-scenes content.